Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University, and the following was a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2021 in a course on 100 years of horror, coming up into the millennium, the 2000s, finally coming around to a ghost story, a ghost story among many choices of ghost stories, with Gore Verbinski's remake of the Japanese horror film Ringu with The Ring. At the close of the 90s, I was dying for some good horror. I mean, I'd enjoyed uh, the highbrow literary adaptations, the Dra- uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. I'd liked um, the you know film version of of interview with a vampire, but I, I was dying for something that would genuinely scare me and, and not just feel a little gothic, a little dark. And um, in 1999, was watching every horror movie that was coming out. And there were two films in 99 that, that stood out that as sort of markers for where uh, at least the beginning of the 2000s would go in some respects. Um, Starting with uh, Bruce Willis's uh, appearance in M. Night Shyamalan's uh, The Sixth Sense, which had this Hitchcockian surprise ending, uh, had some genuine scares along the way, and was just a great, creepy ghost story. And its success arguably paved the way for a number of other great uh, haunted movies, great ghost stories. Um, and when I reached the point in this course where I was looking at the 2000s, I realized I've looked at every other major type of monster except for the ghost. So, you know, which ghost should I include in the films that I could, you know, ascertain as the great ones from the 2000s? One of the standouts was, of course, Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone which is an absolutely brilliant uh, piece of cinema. Beautiful movie, wonderful story. It's great in every way possible. And if you can get your hands on the Criterion Collection version of it, I highly recommend you do so. And then there was the not rated R, not super gory, not uh, utterly terrifying, but still genuinely creepy, uh, The Others with Nicole Kidman. A great ghost story. No no if ands, or buts about it. And then, of course, there was the option to go with Paranormal Activity, the indie film of all indie films in terms of horror movies, uh, a movie that made so much money at the box office that it stands as one of the, the great success stories of indie filmmaking. Um, and, of course, Paranormal Activity was indicative of one of the other directions that one could go in looking at horror in the 2000s, and that's found footage films starting with the Blair Witch Project, which was a bit of a sensation when it first came out, although I I totally agree with a friend of mine who said, I think this film would have been more terrifying if I'd found the VHS tape of it in my garbage, you know, if it was in my trash or something like that. It would have been an interesting marketing campaign. Um, But it was the story of student filmmakers, and that is something that gets repeated uh, with some later found footage movies, uh, disappearing in the woods near 
Bur Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary a year later, their footage was found. And like so many horror films before, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Blair Witch Project, capitalized on the possibility that this was based on a true story. And the film certainly felt felt that way, seeing it in the theater. Uh, there's no soundtrack to guide your emotional landscape. You just have the images to deal with. But its success spawned a number of other found footage moving, movies, including uh, Wreck, Right, record. Um, the giant monster film, uh, Cloverfield, we didn't know it was a giant monster film when, uh, when it was first being released. It was one of those J.J. Abrams is, you know, trying to keep us on the edge of our seats and, and, and make us wonder whatever, whatever mystery are you cooking up for us now, the man who gave us Lost. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's another found footage film. I think it's really, really well done. Um, I, I don't particularly necessarily enjoy found footage movies. Um, I don't find them as cinematically compelling as some other films. Although the more that I think about it, the more I think there's really an art to making it feel like you're watching a piece of uh, film that was was made by students, but you know doesn't doesn't make you sick, gives you a compelling storyline, uh, and it's one of the things that I think is so great about uh, the Norwegian film Troll Hunter, uh, which isn't you know super scary horror, but is still horror nonetheless. There's some horrible things that happen in the narrative, and its trolls are certainly horrific in a way um but that that narrative holds together even while the film has to continue to keep up the pretense of being this you know uh, student film, this this object that you just find. And then, of course, we, we come full circle to Paranormal Activity, and so it just seems like, gosh, you know, you gotta go with Paranormal Activity, but ultimately I decided not to. And it's not because I don't think Paranormal Activity is a scary film, because I think it is. I think it's terrifying. And there are ways in which we could study it, but I thought that there would be something richer, I guess, in the discussion of looking at a different sort of found footage movie. And that's a movie where in the found footage is inside the diegesis, the fictional world of the film, not the style in which the film is made. And that it would also be emblematic of Murray Leader's, what Murray Leader says, you know, in the 1990s, there was this full cycle of Japanese horror, often shortened and genericized to J-horror. And this became a major international force to be reckoned with, with a slate of daring, serious and disturbing films. J-horror, um, which, you know, some, some horror historians will go, ah, it was a flash in the pan. But really, J-horror is Japanese horror. And um, certainly the remakes, and this is something Leader uh, talks about, the remakes of movies like Ringu being made into The Ring or Juon being made into The Grudge is indicative of a, of a very sort of uh, narrow idea of what J-horror ultimately is. Um, and Leader says, you know, like, if, if you think that J-horror is just what we got in these remakes, well, let me tell you, there's a, there's a lot of other stuff um, that you're missing out on, uh, at, you know, right off the uh, top of my head, I, I think of, you know, it's not necessarily horror in a sense, although it is certainly uh, filled with horrific imagery in a movie like Battle Royale, um, which Leader also cites. When I went to prepare for this lecture, I found myself in a, a situation unique from the other lectures that I've given and the ones that I have yet, yet to give in that um, there wasn't really any sustained secondary literature around this movie. There 
have been a number of academic conversations between Ringu and the Ring and then other, you know, uh, the, the Korean remake. Uh, but there wasn't one that like looked specifically at Verbinski's The Ring and you know, sort of treated it with, on, on its on its own merit, uh, and that's something that I'd like to do. In as much as I want to go, like, yes, of course, I wanted to highlight that there was J horror and it was this moment in uh, American film. But this entire course has really been horror in English, aside from the start with Nosferatu. I mean, maybe it's a bit disingenuous for me to say this, but it was you know it was my way of getting 100 years of horror into the course. Um, but the majority of the films have been in English and made primarily by American filmmakers uh, with a few, you know, uh, jumps over the pond to Britain. If you count um, the making of, you know, because James Whale was British, that the Bride of Frankenstein is ultimately a, a British film, but is a ma made in America. But um, to, to avoid having the wealth, really the wealth of world cinema that you get f by turning your, your gaze outside uh, of of the United States and outside of English speaking countries, um, I had to I had to refine the course. And the moment you open up the gates to French horror to Japanese horror, uh, it, things get bananas, and it gets very very hard to make decent decisions about you know which films you'll include. And it also becomes increasingly difficult to. Um, teach that content without having this huge foundation of cultural signifiers in place. Uh, Valerie Wee, in her article, Visual Aesthetics and Ways of Seeing, Comparing Ringu to the Ring, uh, comments on how the very images that are found on the cursed videotape in both films say something about the cultures that produce them. And it's one of the reasons that it, it can be really difficult to, to teach things like traditional haiku, because if you don't have the symbolic, you don't have the awareness of what the, these symbolic signifiers mean, then you're at a loss to say what you think that particular haiku is about. Like, does a Westerner really understand the significance of, you know, some form of water bird, like a crane standing as a storm rolls in, um, that kind of thing matters. And it's also ultimately why I wanted to focus on Verbinski's The Ring, because I'm not uh, someone who studies East Asian uh, narrative enough or culture enough to be an expert in that respect. Uh, kaiju movies, totally different thing. <laughs> I, I have lots of, I have, I have enough information for that, but this is not, this is not that thing. Um, what was really frustrating for me as I was, as, as again, as I say, I was preparing for this and I'm trying to find secondary sources, not because I can't think stuff up on my own, but because I subscribe to uh, Gerald Graff and Kathy Birkenstein's approach of um, writing uh, research essays, but I've also worked that into my own research of understanding that we are always entering a conversation that is, that it already exists and is ongoing when we do research and that to ignore that conversation, uh, like we do that at our peril. And so I at least wanted to enter the conversation a little bit, but as I say, there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of academic conversation around Verbinski's The Ring on its own. Uh, what I saw a lot of was 
you know, these comparative things where there, there was always a sense of like the original was better, that, that priority mattered in some way, or that there was something more essentially true or, or valuable or authentic about uh, the Japanese version. So, you know, Colette Balmain's Oriental Nightmares, the demonic other in contemporary American adaptations of Japanese horror film, says, through the process of adaptation, the narratives of both films were reworked within the conventions of mainstream Hollywood narrative. Speaking of uh, The Ring and, and another J-horror film, Hollywood narrative with the psychological horror of the originals being replaced in places by greater emphasis on more immediate visceral thrills of the spectacle. And... I don't know. That just feels, it feels like it's like, like somehow the spectacle or whatever it was that someone, you know, that Verbinski did in the ring wasn't as valuable. And I suppose, depending on what you're wanting to do, I mean, Balmain's focus is the demonic other in contemporary American adaptations of Japanese horror films. She's really looking at Orientalism uh, and the way in which um, the other is represented in horror. Uh, I suppose that works then to to approach it in that way. But my approach has been throughout this course to look at horror to some degree within its cultural context, to be sure, but always within a sense of the formal art of of film language and and the way in which that constructs um, moments in cinema that produce you know, Hainich's different modes of fear, these different, you know, like what produces um, direct horror, suggestive horror? How is it used in this particular film? How does the camera work contribute to that? How does the the sound work with that? What does the mise-en-scene tell us about what this film is trying to do? And is that part of what ho- horrifies us? Because, you know, re- referencing once again, Andrew Tudor's idea that we have to ask the question, why this horror for these people in this place at this time? Uh, that isn't always a cultural question. Sometimes that has an awful lot to do with the uh, technological innovations that were available to the filmmaker to enhance their um, expression of horror in this particular instance. Uh, and then the other thing that I kept seeing in the literature that I was, I was looking at was readings of the film that to me didn't really speak to um, the film as horror film so much as some sort of cultural artifact that's, you know, again, speaks to the deep-seated horror that we are repressing. Um, So here is Brian Jarvis's anamorphic allegory in the ring, or seven ways of looking at a horror video. Uh, Samara Samara has been read as an allegorical emblem. So this is is one that looks particularly at, um, at Verbinski's film in particular. Uh, But Samara has been read as an allegorical emblem for the history of ghost machines and for contemporary optic optical technologies. Now listen to that. An allegorical emblem for the history of ghost machines, that I sort of get, and for contemporary optical technologies. But she also appears as a gothic premonition of an imminent digital zeitgeist, a sibylline specter from the post-celluloid future. As this digital wraith crawls through the screen, we could be witnessing the allegorical death of analog video and celluloid film alongside the figurative birth of next-generation virtual reality and i'm thinking do you really think i mean that's an interest it sort of becomes the reading for the sake of the reading and you know if that's your jam carry on but in understanding what this film is doing that's that makes me scared the thing that that produces you know one of hainich's modes of fear 
this doesn't really work for me. It's like, oh no, the loss of VHS tape. Whatever will we do, Margaret? Like, it just doesn't feel to me like we're, we're talking about the text. It always feels like we're like, we're using the text as a way to talk about other things that we're interested in talking about. And at that, that, that point, I'm just like, go and talk about it. Like, just go and talk about that thing, but stop, stop, stop doing this. Um, not that I really think Brian Jarvis should necessarily, but I guess for me, I'm probably getting read a bit. It probably um, triggers me a little bit. And I don't really want to use that word because I think real triggering and PTSD, uh, PTSD are, you know, that's serious stuff. But like it, it, it hits me in a place that brings up a lot of emotions related to my career when I was a minister, because I would often appropriate narratives allegorically to use as devotional content. You know, let me give you an example of how, you know, Jesus does whatever. And I would use some moment from a film to illustrate that. And it was almost always allegorizing. And I I don't know that I think I was doing something wrong, but I was certainly reinterpreting films in ways they weren't meant to be understood. I was was constantly appropriating them uh, for what I was interested in saying. And so as an academic, I'm just, I'm always a little bit, I get, I get, I get itchy when I read that sort of thing, because it feel again, like what I was doing as a minister was I was taking the film and I was going, I don't want to talk about what you're talking about. So I'm bringing you over here and make you do what I want you to. And I always feel like, you know, it does a little bit of violence to the text at some level. Um, more of Brian Jarvis, Samara's emergence from these machines signifies a ter- terrifying materialization of all that which lies buried and unseen beneath the postmodern image. The vast infrastructure of production, distribution, and maintenance which sustains post-industrial networks of reproduction. No, no. I, I, I'll give Jarvis the last one. I am no. Nope, nope, nope. I don't think this film is about um, the vast infrastructure of production, distribution, and maintenance, which sustains post-industrial networks of reproduction. So it feels like a book. There was a there was a book that I read when I was uh, you know when I was a minister, and it was called Adventures in Missing the Point. And I felt an awful lot as I was looking through the literature surrounding Verbinski's The Ring that I was I was inside of a new version of that. That this was like Adventures in Missing the Point with The Ring. So. Now that I've done a whole bunch of talking about what, you know, I don't agree with, let me give you my reading, because that's ultimately all I've got for you today. I don't have other people to quote. I don't have a lot of other people to cite. I have only my crazy Mike Pershawn observations to present to you. So here we go. Um, The film opens... In much the same way, we we would say, as Scream opened. You know, the last film that we looked at, uh, Scream opens with the lone uh, teen female in the house. We get two of them this time, but it sure feels like familiar territory. It feels like standard slasher territory. And I do want to highlight that I think that you've got a, a shift where, you know, if the 90s were about... Uh, where the where the decade of the serial killer, there was a there was a moment at the beginning of the uh, the two thousands where there was a shift over to supernatural horror, and the ring was one of these moments. But it's still utilizing, and and I realize, of course, that this film relies deeply upon its source text. It is a remake of Ringu, and insofar as the story elements are concerned, it follows them closely. But there's a lot 
of aesthetic and stylistic moves that Verbinski makes that are distinct from that film. But I don't want to play a game of which one's better because they're both great movies. I don't want to jump back and forth going, and this one does this and the other one does that. I mean, I'm going to do that probably twice, but I mostly want to take The Ring uh, as its own film rather than as comparative node with Ringu because there's there are some things to be discerned and discovered in that kind of comparative work Valerie Wee's already done it so go check out her article visual aesthetics and ways of of seeing comparing Ringu to the ring and you will learn some stuff in that respect I do not want to engage in a comparative read of these movies but rather um, a close formal read of Verbinski's the ring so uh you know, the, the standard setup with the teenagers and then, and then they're talking about an urban myth involving a, you know, a videotape that uh, if you watch it seven days later, you die. And these are this again, this is familiar ground. You know, did you ever hear the story about the, the, the lone babysitter in the house and then she phones and the guy's upstairs and, you know, we get that recycled over and over again. So the film begins someplace that feels terribly familiar, but, but moves off that territory relatively quickly. Although we get another scream mask fake out right away with, you know, the one girl pretending to choke something that will later be made good upon when our heroine has to drag the, you know, the, 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 contact out of her mouth and it almost looks like she's bringing up uh, hair initially but that choking you know is something that uh that pays off later in the film but here it's just a fake out here it's just a fake out here it's oh i'm dying and the actress does a very good job here of selling us on this being the beginning of whatever it is that's about to happen um that that you know whatever she's doing this is it it's going down and then she collapses onto her friend's lap and there's that shock and oh you jerk i can't believe you did that to me uh and we get that first fake out and this opening sequence is full of fake outs um so you know katie and her friend going downstairs and we get the first of many shots that will that like the, the the opening sequence of this film is like here's the catalog of all the types of shots that we're going to use in this film and we are going to we're going to hit those notes over and over and over again we're just going to keep coming back to them keep coming back to them keep coming back to them and so we get you know katie and her friend going downstairs and the the aperture the the through which we see them is very narrow and there are a lot of confined spaces in this film. The mise-en-scene of this film is, can we find locations where we'll have to crowd the actors in? There are a few wide shots. There are a few sprawling drive-through, you know, the Seattle wilderness kind of shots. But there are a lot of look-down-the-narrow-hallway shots. And this is one of the first of many. It's also one of the first of many moments of rack focus. This film uses so much rack focus. So rack focus is when you have a change in point of focus for one subject to another in the same shot. So in this one, it begins with Katie and her friend and the phone is out of focus in the foreground. And then as they come closer, the phone comes into focus and what's in the back goes out of focus and rack focus is used to just it's used to move you know it's to draw our eye to focus our eye um 
to create what we call eye tracing to make sure that we're looking where we need to. But when you leave background sections out of focus, there are also spaces in which traditionally you can hide the monster, you can hide the threat, you can hide the face at the window. And so the use of rack focus over and over again creates a little bit of, of, of a sense of, of dread that builds until we get some form of that shock resolution, right? Uh, and we get another fake out here as Katie's friend picks up the phone and she, oh, it's, you know, and she hands it over. She doesn't say it's your mom. She just hands it over and then we get, we get the reveal. But boy, I'll tell you, they stretch that out. Verbinski plays it out as long as he can. Again, building dread, building dread. And what's great about this is it's like dread, 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 ah, dread, 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 ah. And so now that we've been toyed with twice, we're sort of in, we're in the mode of like, how many more of these fake outs are we going to get? And I love, love, love the shot where the camera pushes towards uh, Katie filling a glass, uh, I guess, of lemonade. And in the background, we can see these, these, these frosted windows that you can't see through perfectly. And that's something else that we see a lot of in this film are surfaces that are impermeable like we can't see through them clearly they're not you know they're it's not clear glass it's like it's frosted glass or there's rain on the on the on the window or something like that and so the camera's pushing in and we've got the same kind of setups that we saw at the beginning of scream with casey drew barrymore playing casey as she walks around this house where there's like how many windows do you people have you know whenever i ride past houses that have that many windows i'm always like man that just looks like a lot of trouble with blinds because i don't want people looking in my house that freaks me out but for a horror movie it's perfect right because then you can have somebody looking through the window uh great choices for mise-en-scene the mise-en-scene here is really really well done not only because of the windows but also his color scheme which we'll get to in just a little bit it's very very consistent not only color grading but color scheme in in the way that this film uh has been designed at the at the level of set and costume um it's cold right it's like being in the matrix and the camera pushes forward and we are waiting for something to happen because this is that that thing where, you know, almost in the way that, that found footage films work, where you're pushing forward as the, you know, the first person perspective. Are we the killer? Is the killer about to go into the room? Uh, no, in fact, the, the, the monster, as it were, the threat uh, that looms is in the background in with with the television, the light from the television um, coming through that that glass that frosted glass and uh, the look on the actress's face this look of shock she goes in she shuts it off she's yelling for her friend quits you know quit screwing around and then there's the moment of the ascent back upstairs still looking for her friend and now we get one of many narrow staircases that we're going to get. And as I said before, I mean, we get repetitions of these things. When Aiden is the young boy, um, Rachel's son is at the party or the party, the funeral, and he's looking up the stairs. This is the same perspective. And so there, there there's a sense of not only intertextual echoes or intermedial echoes with other films that we've looked at this semester, but the film has its own sort of echo chamber within its narrative where this has happened and now it's happening again. And there are these recurrences, these visual motifs. Uh, and in some way, it's sort of, it, there's a way in which it, it 
um, echoes the thing, and I'll say more about this in just a little while, but in that what is happening now has happened before. But we're seeing it. We get that that same kind of setup that we get with Scream, which is we need to kill someone at the beginning of this film so that we can tell you how dire this is. And we are going to see this yet again with It Follows. So, you know, repetition of that narrow staircase. And again, mise-en-scene, production design, choice of if, you know, shooting on location, find me a house with narrow staircases, find me a space with narrow staircases. And we get so many narrow staircases, so many, uh, uh, uh shots, including the ladder shots that, that move up in, in that way. And then lots again of narrow hallway shots. Um, Katie looking down towards her bedroom as inexplicably and mysteriously water just pours out. And I get the chills. Every time I watch this sequence with that uh, three, you know, that, that, that move to that, that tritone uh, moves up through a sequence that resolves into this, this moment of dissonance. It always gives us a sense of the creeps. Um, it's, it's just great. But all we have here is water on the floor. And yet it's terrifying because of the way in which Verbinski is filming all of these things. And that narrow hallway is just like, is there anywhere else you can go? No, there's a sense of being hemmed in. There's a sense of being confined. And this film is a catalog of shots in, in what we call closed framing, closed framing, making the, um, the, the film, the film goer feel like the character in the movie, uh, and that they, that they lack agency. Uh, they are hemmed in, they are trapped. Uh, all of this, of course, being consistent with the film's narrative, I, uh, narrative thrust. Um, again, Aiden, this exact shot to, you know, some degree is not quite as low. We don't have to see the water on the floor. Um, but it's a very similar shot when he walks upstairs to see Katie's room. Uh, she was his babysitter. They were very close. Uh, they were cousins. Um, and so he's lamenting that loss and he's taking the same journey that she does, which in some ways anticipates that it will be him who will as well be the subject of the this has happened before. Now it's happening again. Now, in addition to the repetition of confined closed framing, we get a ton of frames within frames. This movie is chock full <laughs> of Okay, here's here's your frame of the cinema. You know, this is the, the the this is the frame in which we've shot this, and then inside the frame, there's another frame, and it's usually showing you some more cinema. There are other you know images, but the but we get to see the movie within the movie over and over again, and it's legit found footage. I mean, I'm I'm poking fun at that a little bit. Um, but I, I felt like that was a way to, to sort of, <laughs> uh, playfully say, oh, I did both. I did, I did J-horror and found footage in one film, <clears throat> of course, realizing that I didn't, but, um, some of that idea that my friend had said, you know, like, can you imagine if they'd have marketed Blair Witch Project by just, you know, randomly putting VHS tapes in, or, you know, in people's trash and then you would, you know, or somewhere where they would find it in their mailbox or whatever. And you find this tape and you're like, what the hell is this? And you put it in and it's like, what? What am I watching? You know, what kind of a, you know, they could have done the same thing with the ring. It would have been absolutely terrifying. I was, I was genuinely freaked out when I saw this movie. Um, I didn't see it in the theaters. I saw it on DVD and on the DVD, they've got this 
option says don't watch this <laughs> it's the it's the it's the ring video it's samara's projections and um yeah i'm a rational human being or i like to think i am uh i knew i wasn't watching a videotape so you know I, i'm fine right ah, i don't know it was just so incredibly disturbing i'm gonna say more about why i think it's disturbing in just a little bit we get these frames within the frames of Samara's, uh, you know, nightmaric, nightmarish visions on the television. Um, but, and then within those frames, we often get static. And this is another re recurrence. So I'm talking about the things that I see over and over again. Where do, I, where do we see the visual motifs? Where do we see what this film is doing over and over again? And this goes back to the color scheme of this film to some degree, but static itself. And here I'm quoting Craig Rain, the poet Craig Rain, in his poem, um, A Martian Sends a Postcard Home in which an alien is describing Earth. And when the alien describes rain, he says that rain is the color of TV turned to a dead channel. Rain is the color of TV turned to a dead channel. And it makes me think of William Gibson's uh, line uh, where he says that the sky was the color of television. Again, turned to, turned to a dead channel. Um, maybe I'm mixing those actually a little bit. But anyway... Uh, rain is the color of television, I think is what it says. Rain is when, when the world is the color of television or something like that. Um, and, and, and William Gibson says the thing about TV turned to a dead channel. Both making the reference that rain falling looks a lot like static. And sure, you could say, well, the movie was filmed in Seattle. That's why there's so much rain. No, 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 no. That's ignoring the depth of contrivance that movies are produced with especially once we recognize as we can with the ring that this film is being made as carefully as it is we ought to acknowledge that other aspects of the film were probably made with as much care now if it was texas chainsaw massacre but it was the seattle chainsaw massacre and you were like it rains a lot in this movie you'd be like well it's because it was low budget and they couldn't go anywhere else and well seattle's always raining um so you know yeah low budget now but verbinski's the ring not a low budget picture this was a this was a there was a there was a there was a there was money involved with this film they could have filmed it somewhere else but they filmed it in seattle i think there are reasons for that um and the rain is probably part of it but not just we wanted to go somewhere there was rain, but rain as a recurrence of almost like nature's static, as it were, that this film is constantly in opaque state um, that we, we don't always see clearly what's going on. This film is, is all about not seeing clearly in as much as it's about seeing. Uh, it's about surfaces. It's about, you know, the rain on the surface and staring out. Uh, it's about people being reflected in windows, uh, Aiden being reflected in the television screen in his cousin's room. Um, so we get that, th those recurrences. And then we get the evidence, the clues that point us to the truth about what's going on. And this brings us back to the frames within frames. Although now we're not talking about frames within frames where the frame has a moving picture in this particular case, but rather Katie's scrapbook, which is filled with photos, which are ultimately still frames. They're, you know, images within the image. And we get, you know, these, these images from fashion magazines where she's scribbled with a black marker, uh, hair falling over the face, the face being obscured again, the obscuring, the opaque, the opacity, the, the ability to see clearly, you know, what's going on. The frame of Katie herself in, in the photographs, 
that Rachel goes through, resolving into that creepy photo with the smudged faces, which will itself be a recurrence. But those are, those are mediated to us as frames within frames. And Rachel's eyes become the windows through which we see these things. Although later on, it will be, you know, um, Aiden's father. Uh, her and her former lover, um, Rachel's former lover, who who have these these uh, who who becomes our other set of eyes, um, in as much as the camera is constantly our narrator. <clears throat> but we're seeing, and this is where I, I really want to push back against sort of that. Well, it's about the loss of analog technology and the rise of the digital, and it's like no, this film is just using all the technologies. There's so many different forms of media that lead Rachel to the truth. So much so that I had to think, wow, this feels like if you've ever played the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu, it felt like a Call of Cthulhu adventure where you're constantly being given handouts. The guy who's running the game is like, read another handout. Here's some more reading for you. Uh, and you read it and you go, ooh, creepy clue. And, and the clue always leads you to the next thing. And when you get there, guess what you get? More clues, right? So every piece of media that um, that Rachel discovers, these frames with in the frames, which then become framed themselves. And you might say, well, aren't they, aren't all sorts of films like this one? Yes. There's always a frame around the movie that you're watching, but are, is what's happening in the mise-en-scene. Is it filled with frames? Is it filled with confined spaces? But this film doesn't just make use of old books and old uh, microfiche of uh, newspaper articles. It also makes use of the internet. So the, the digital is also there. I don't think this film is about... I mean, it, it, it's about those technologies. It's about media technology insofar as they are in the film. But that's a little bit like saying that James Cameron's Titanic is an indictment of, you know, uh, shipbuilding at the beginning of the 20th century. Missing uh, the point. It's a disaster film crossed with a romance. And this is a horror movie. It's not a it's not a it's not a film that has something to say about the way in which we receive media. This is not the social network. Um and we get images as well of children's art, uh, both teenager and then Aiden's really creepy drawing of, you know, the family. And there's uh, appears to be Samara hanging around with them as well. Really seemingly benign frames on the wall. Uh, the film does not need to include these things, but the film does. And if a film carefully includes objects like this in its mise-en-scene, they are as crucial to the storytelling as any other aspect of film that we would be looking at. We get these um, moments of, of projected thermography, right? Um, these images that, that, the, that the ex-boyfriend finds at the, you know... Um, and and that too being a scene that has a has a, a you know confined nature to it as we'll see and then the videotape that Rachel watches is just frames within frames within frames it gets very sort of um infinite regressions uh kind of going on where we have a TV well we have our frame then we have the TV within the frame and then we have one of those projected thermographic images uh and then we have a video screen in the video screen of Samara and Samara in the background. So it's just layer upon layer upon layer. And people, people can talk all they want about the postmodern significance of these things. Um, you know, the, the simulacrum, the simulacrum and all sorts of other 
you know, ways in which you might read this. But I think that all of these things add up to a sense of confinement, a sense of being hemmed in. We're going to come back to that in just a second because this film crosscuts between these really tight, closed spaces and these wide open ones that just show up out of the blue like a non sequitur. And you're like, what? And, and it's one of the things I love about this movie. Apparently, they wanted David Lynch to do it, but he wasn't available or something. David Lynch couldn't do the movie. But boy, oh boy, does this movie ever feel Lynchian. It feels... It's so many space, so many points like a David Lynch movie. Uh, not least uh, because it's filmed out in the Seattle area, which was the same place that Twin Peaks was filmed. So there's a very strong association with, in my mind anyway, with David Lynch and, and, and that area of the world, no matter, you know, how much he was involved or not involved in, in the, the second season of the television series. Um, that was me being very digressive. My apologies. Bring it back around this, you know, the solitary lone tree, this, I don't know why I said solitary and lone. Could I be more redundant? Um, solitary tree with these red leaves on it with the with the sun behind it and the clouds moving and it's it's often done with a little bit of time lapse speed to it and it's creepy it it comes out of the blue it's like watching a, a nightmare it's like watching a dream so much dream imagery in this film even when most of the time nobody's dreaming close-ups of those red leaves and these shots get repeated at points in the film where they don't seem to have any narrative sense and they're very jarring they tend to be you know disturbing despite the fact that there's nothing disturbing about these photos i mean really they're kind of pretty but what it allows verbinski to do is to fill the cabin that rachel is in getting more evidence more clues in her call of cthulhu adventure rachel goes out to a creepy cabin in the woods <laughs> and you know finds another clue and she watches the clue which of course means that she's going to die in seven days but before she does the room fills with red light now that makes no sense in the real world you don't care how many leaves you run the run the sun's light through you will not get that kind of red light the only kind of the only way you get that kind of red light is if you have a red gel over a light that's how you get that light or you use actual colored lights and some of the critical responses to this film were like it's incoherent it doesn't make sense but it sure works in a creepy way. Like the moment that that room starts to go red, I'm like, ah, I have the same reaction that the guy did sitting in front of me, watching the thing when the blanket moved and you knew the thing underneath wasn't dead. And he said, oh, God damn. And, you know, like he's worried about what's going to happen next. That's me. When Rachel sits on that couch and she's looking at the videotape and the room starts to go red. And that feels very Lynch as well because he had his red room in uh, Twin Peaks. So maybe it's not Lynch so much as Twin Peaks that this echoes for me. But um, it, it makes me, this is the moment that I feel like it's worth quoting Valerie Wee. Uh, again, uh, refer I referenced her earlier. I'm going to quote her directly now. She says, Japanese cinema reveals a tendency. And I was, okay, this isn't Japanese cinema. I get that. This is Gore Verbinski, but it's Verbinski riffing on a Japanese film. Japanese cinema reveals a tendency to eschew realism in preference of its own aesthetic commitment to the presentational aspect of art. Its own aesthetic commitment to the presentational aspect of art where stylization and artifice are emphasized and valued and where the non-rational and suggestive are accepted and valued over the literal 
alongside this privileging of art and artifice was an accompanying, accompanying neglect of narrative coherence. An accompanying neglect of narrative coherence. So some people say, wait, well, it just doesn't make any sense. Because if you stop to think about it, you stopped to think about it? Why would you ever stop to think about it in a horror movie? That's not what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, if that's the way you want to enjoy your movies, more power to you. But the ring works because the ring feels like a dream. It feels strange and weird and unsettling. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. You just say, none of this makes sense. But that sounds like a, a line from a horror movie. None of what's happening here makes sense. Right? But it doesn't have to because working out of this tradition, and this, this is really, I think, Verbinski being more in the, the, the tradition that Valerie Wee is talking about than he is within the Hollywood tradition. In the same way that Lynch has sat outside of it so much and that uh, the writer um, and co-creator sort of, of Twin Peaks, Mark, Mark Lynch once, or no, not Mark Lynch, Mark Frost once said about David Lynch, David can't do narrative worth shit, but he can make you feel things just through pure cinema. I mean, that's something that Lynch does from time to time. I think he just did pure cinema. Here's a bunch of images on the screen. Now feel what I want you to. And I think Verbinski is successful in the ring in making us feel a sense of dread by aligning these images in this way. And he's playing with reality in a way that feels very similar, to, very, very similar but it's not perfect. And then we get another one of those non, you know, these non sequiturs work throughout the film. They just boom out of the blue. Let me give you a close-up of a horse's eye. Now, if you took that from 20 feet back, totally different shot, but you get right up there and boy, that's disturbing as all get out. And it's this prefiguring of what is about to happen of the horse who is hemmed in, who is confined, breaking free. And once having broke free, is he like, you know, he's not like, let it go. No, he's like, I'm just going to jump over the side of this ship and die horribly so that the little girl who owned me can scream and you can see blood in the ocean um, an image that we've seen in samara's uh you know visions that she 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 projects through the videotape but it's it's this sudden intrusion of the seemingly non-sequitur imagery rendered in this color scheme again coming back to the color scheme that grainy vintage feeling footage it's not sepia, it's, it's, but it's monochromatic. And so it feels old timey and it's got that sort of flicker to it that tells us like there's something old and there's something, something from the past about this. And that is a difference between the way that Verbinski handles that and the way that, that the, the original Ringu handles that because we don't get that same kind of um, use of the color scheme of the video throughout the film. Like we get repetition of that in the mise-en-scene of production design, of costuming, of the rainy, you know, uh, digital color grading of, of the movie. The images within the tape, of course, you know, are also about confinement. The top of the well itself, we get the mother in the frame. We also get Samara in a frame. We get the father upstairs in the house, framed by the window. Frame, 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 frame. And trust me, go back and watch the movie again. You're going to be like, oh my God, this is everywhere. And remember that it's not like they're just like walking around going, well, I guess we'll film here. Some location scout went out and decided this is where we're going to shoot this to 
reinforce all of these motifs, these ideas. And, you know, you get when then when you finally get a wide shot like Rachel running out of the cabin, it's not meant to go. And she's free. We have the same sense of the horse dying. Yeah, it broke free, but it's not off the ship and it's going to die horribly. And there's a little bit of, well, Rachel's out of the cabin, but we know she's still confined. She's still closed in. She's still hemmed in. Everything is still dangerous. And the film's visual motifs continue to reinforce this with her standing at the bottom of that ladder and the camera looking down at us. Um, the use of the repetition of the, the non-diegetic um, words on the screen, Saturday, day three, right? The countdown that tells us how much more time she has. Um, the narrow confines of hallways within uh, mental wards and within um, people's houses, the closed framing of um, sitting uh, Naomi Watts right in the middle of a room that is just packed with old newspapers. And, and that, you know, creates this sense of, of closed in of, of things, you know, confining you. Uh, the film also makes very wide use of masking, which is a technique where you block off portions of the frame, which creates new frames. And we've sort of talked about this a little bit, but that wasn't really block. That wasn't masking in those particular cases. But here, what we're, what we're you doing is we've got like when um, Rachel is going down in the elevator and she's looking up through the slats and she's masked. That's what, we, that's what we refer to as masking. And that creates new frames within the standard rectangle of the film. The shot when Rachel is speaking to the doctor on the island is masked by the playground um, merry-go-round as the boy is on it. And we keep, keep having our vision obscured. Um, the tree in the middle of that yard, this giant, giant tree. Why did they film there? Well, because they could mask with seven several uh, of the items in the space that, and, and this is a, this again, it's a visual motif that recurs throughout the film and it creates this sense of things being blocked in, hemmed in, trapped, right? When uh, Noah has gone to the, the archives and the camera is following in the aisle next, did the camera have to do that? No, you could just follow the actor or have the camera in front of the actor. And that creates a different effect. But this movie over and over again is trying to go, let me put you in a little box or a well, as it were. Um, when Noah and Rachel finally uh, come to the climax of the quest discovering you know what's going on in the barn the shots of them entering the barn have that sense of, of small enclosed spaces samara's room at the top of the ladder i get chills every time i look at that that shot that scene it always just woo, gives me the creeps in some ways maybe because it's now reminding me of hereditary but um the latter, you know, the, the, there's this sort of these these payoffs but they're not just payoffs in terms of like that ladder as motif it's how it sits within the frame that that room up at the top of that ladder is this narrow little space there's a narrow little ladder going up to that narrow little space and the camera tracks rachel's ascent not from the side or from behind her but rather from the other side of the ladder so that as she climbs you guessed it we've got these frames that hammer her in when they finally hack through the floor of the cabin where is the shot 
position. The camera is down inside the hole looking out at Noah and Rachel, giving us yet again a jagged one, but frame nonetheless. So over and over again, this movie has this this sense of closing in on us. And we feel, we feel that intuitively, even if we don't recognize it immediately. We certainly feel that when Rachel falls down the well and the well cap, you know, is, is, is closing. Uh, we feel that sense of, of claustrophobia of, Oh no, she's trapped. But that is consequently why the film is able to fake us out so well at the end, because after this inundation of all these closed frames of the masking of the frames within the frames. We get this shot where Rachel is holding Samara's skeletal corpse, looking up towards the light and that light signals freedom. Just the way that that shot is presented. There's just something, I hate using the word iconic, but I'm going to use it anyway. Something iconic about that. It just looks like, oh, we've got the moment of hope. All is well. Light is shining down. She's clearly no longer confined in the darkness. All will be well and all manner of things will be well. And the very next shot is a wide pan. The camera looking initially to the right seeing a police vehicle drive up and then a very wide pan that takes us across all of the emergency, uh, you know, operate all these people, these emergency staff who've showed up to, you know, excavate the cabin, do whatever it is that these people do, forensic stuff. And the camera keeps panning over until finally it arrives at Noah and Rachel over at this log. And again, we're in the middle of the woods, ostensibly the woods just outside of Seattle or, you know, maybe Vancouver. I'm not sure where they filmed it, but there's lots of opportunities for masking here, but the camera's not doing that now. It's not really hemming them in. It's actually, this feels very wide and open which is exactly the sort of shot you'd want to have if this was where the movie ended. But it's not, as we know. But the movie fakes us out at this point through these technical moves. The only masked shot that we get in this sequence following is of Noah and Rachel's hands as they hold hands together. And we know all it, everything's good now. Everything is good. And that is mirrored in the performance uh, the, the, the young actor who plays Aiden as he opens his eyes and he smiles, not too much, not a, not, not an eighties family movie, but he just smiles a little bit and we go, Oh, it's all, the music tells us it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And I think it's why it's so great that it's Aiden who gets to tell us that it's not because Aiden just told us it was Aiden, you liar. Um, and we get to him saying, Rachel, you weren't supposed to help him. How you weren't supposed to help her. This is the most terrifying scenes for me in, I got to say, the history of horror. I, this scene always gives me chills. But I, I'll readily admit, supernatural horror, that's my jam. So it's going to hit me harder probably than other, other types. When he says that, I just, oof, the chills. And then his nose starts to bleed and you're like, no. And the movie moves back to its frequent techniques. Frames within frames. Uh, part of Noah's studio masking the television initially so that we don't see it perfectly right away. But again, you know, frame within frame, closed situations. And this too is very distinct from uh, Ringu in that we have that grainy, monochromatic, feels like a silent film, feels like Nosferatu. Let's be, let's be real here. Um, but just with a, with a, with a little demon girl who, you know, 
can't keep her hair out of her eyes. And then when she crawls out of the television screen, um, you know, just the corpse-like nature of this creature, absolutely fabulous. I've seen some critiques of, of, of Verbinski's The Ring that says that it it doesn't feel as real, consequently, as Ringu does. I, I don't know about that. I mean, suspension of willing suspension of disbelief, being the sympathetic viewer, I think this absolutely works. It, ter- it scared the ever-living shit out of me the first time that I saw it. Um, I, I, I love this film. I, I'll just come right out and say. Um, and again, we get another echo in that we've got the monstrous child. Uh, this is in some ways a callback, I think, to The Exorcist, uh, that Samara is in this form like possessed Regan. And it's great because we got Samara as normal child and the movie played us oh the movie played us it gave us this beautiful little child and it made us think that the parents were the monsters those monstrous monstrous parents and then it revealed bits and pieces that we 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 hadn't been given it all yet we hadn't been given all the information when we were given all the information then then we understand who the real monster is that this and it's that motiveless malice again we don't know why we don't know why samara's like this but she is and she's terrifying Right. So she's she's Regan, but she never gets to go back to being normal. She's always going to be possessed pea soup Regan. And so the movie plays with us in what Andrew Tudor calls those positions of secure and paranoid horror. We feel like it's going to be a secure horror movie at the point where, you know, Rachel was down the well and she looks up and there's light and we're like, yay, it's a happy ending. That's so nice. And some people are still sad that the horse died, but at least it's over. And the movie flat out says, it's over. And they're like, oh, did you know how long you could live down in a well? Seven days. It all feels like closure. It all feels like closure. But we don't get secure horror with this movie. Psych, another fake out. And then we get the insecure horror, the paranoid horror with which the movie ends. And Aiden, oh, Aiden. As he delivers that beautiful, beautiful line, what about the person we show it to? As they're making copies of the videotape to show to other people, because that's how you can pass along the problem. Whoa, do you feel it follows just around the corner? Um, You can pass along the problem. What about the person we show it to? What happens to them? And then the film cuts to the video of the ring and then static. And guess who they showed it to? Us! (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love it. It's just... It's so good. And, you know, and sure, if you stop to think about it for just a moment, it doesn't make any sense. But this movie didn't ask you to think about it. This this movie asked you to feel a lot of things. And it did that through a number of techniques of film language. Absolutely, there are narrative elements that push us towards this, but I think that those are those are recognizable. We can we can we, we get those 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 more obvious, I guess, um, narrative items, like the, the fact that, you know, like a mother killing her child, that's horrible. Um, the, the dead horses is horrible. Uh, the father electrocuting himself in the bathtub. These are all horrifying images. But then there's this other subtle level in which the film is just kind of scratching at us the whole way through with these camera techniques, camera techniques of rack focus, of closed framing, of masking, and the repetition of framing. I bring these things up because I want you to be thinking about them. Not only because, you know, that's what I saw when I, when I sat down to do a really close viewing of this movie, but also because I want you to be thinking about them as you look to next week. And our final analytic film, I guess you'd say. Uh, we've only got two to go. And this, the next week is the last of the decades. 
So next week we get into the 2010s with It Follows. And it's a movie that is absolutely playing with focus, with camera work, with trying to get us as the viewer to look all over the frame to try to see where it is and whether or not it's following. So until next week, stay creepy. That's a terrible way to end this episode, but that's all I've got. We'll see you soon.